If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I will be reading from Luke 12, verses 4 through 12 in the ESV. Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you, whomever to fear, for him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers of the authorities, do not be anxious how you, will, how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it is a great joy and privilege to open God's word with you this morning. Before we do, however, uh, would you uh, just pray with me real quick? Uh, Father, we come before you this morning, and we give thanks because you have spoken to us. It is a joy and a blessing to hear from the God of the universe. And Father, we confess that uh, we are incapable of even understanding your word, much less what we should do with it without your help. And so we ask, Father, that you would be among us this morning, that you would encourage those who need encouraged, you would challenge and convict those who need it. And Father, would you, would you build us all up even more into the image of your son. Father, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would take these feeble words, these humble meditations, infuse them with your power so that they might bring you glory. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. In 2019, Apple released the iPhone 11 Pro. And one of the features that set this model apart from its predecessors is that it had not one, not two, but three back-facing cameras. They kind of look like little black holes when you think about it. And interestingly, about that time, there was a rise in tripophobia, which, you guessed it, is a fear of small black holes. And someone at BBC found this very interesting, and so they wrote an article titled Five Phobias You Didn't Know Existed. I will attempt to say those phobias for you now. Sesquipedelophobia, which is the fear, ironically, of long words. Uh, omphalophobia, which is the fear of belly buttons. Uh, turophobia, the fear of cheese. Nomophobia, the fear of being without your cell phone. And of course, phobophobia, which is the fear of having a phobia. 
Now, now we typically chuckle to ourselves when we hear lists like this because we know that even though some people might perceive high levels of danger from these items, for most of us, there is little to no threat. There's no need to be afraid of these things, especially when there are plenty of logical things for us to be afraid of. You know, it makes way more sense to be concerned about an impending financial crisis than it does belly buttons. Your children's life decisions should weigh heavier on you than the thought of cheese. There are plenty of things in this life for us to be afraid of, and frankly, some things are more deserving of our fear than others. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to tell us what we should be most afraid of, what should be on the top of all of our lists. And his answer is really quite troubling. (laughs) He says the thing we should be most afraid of is God. And he's not talking like the psalmists do. Fear for the Lord is not code for delight in valuing him in this passage. When Jesus says fear, he means the wet the bed kind. We should be terrified because of what God is able to do to us. But Jesus isn't saying this to scare his followers. He's actually trying to encourage them to bolster their faith and to get at how this seemingly unsettling passage does that. I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at the nature of fear, the source of fear, and the removal of fear. So the nature of fear. Jesus begins this passage saying, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And before we can unpack that, we need to make sure we understand what fear is. Fear is the anticipation of future pain. And we can experience this in any number of situations. Um, Do you know anyone who's afraid of the dentist? Why are they afraid of the dentist? Because they anticipate some future pain in their mouth region, and so they're afraid of it. They're afraid of going to the dentist. Or, Or maybe you had to have a difficult conversation with a boss or a parent or a significant other. And what happens? Your hands get all clammy. Your heart begins to race you're afraid. Why? Because in the very near future, you are anticipating some painful backlash or fallout from the conversation. And so fear is anticipating future pain. But it doesn't have to necessarily be your pain. Uh, Fear can be triggered when something that you value is threatened. Uh, we, we see this a lot whenever we go to the pool. Have you ever watched a parent who's taking little children to the pool for like the first time or whatever? They will either A, like have a death grip on their child the entire time, or their child will look like they're more flesh, or more floaty than flesh. Um, and, and the reason that's so is because water poses a threat to something they value, to their kids. And so fear is anticipating pain or danger to something that we value. And when we feel fear, it's always coming from somewhere. There's always an incoming threat, an object to fear, if you will. In our passage, there are two, God and man. And Jesus acknowledges that humans can be terrifying. 
and simply look at the Romans, the ruling power of Jesus' day. They had perfected how to mutilate and physically destroy a person. And they had littered the Palestinian countryside with their handiwork. But people can do great damage without ever drawing blood. Lives can be ruined with a word, a post, or a photo. Sticks and stones can certainly break bones, but words often can slay you. People are a great source of fear. But God is far more terrifying than man. See, God not only can kill the body, he can toss the soul in hell. He can lump you together with the wicked in the valley of judgment. And it is a a terrifying thing to reject the opinions of man. But to reject God, that's unforgivable. As an aside, we do need to to talk a little bit about verse 10, because even though it's a minor point in Jesus' argument, my guess is that it jumped out at you. Um, When we read it, we, we wrestle with the question, so what is this unforgivable sin thing? What is blaspheming the Holy Spirit? And what we're actually asking is, have I done that? Is there a chance that I have accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that I have said the wrong thing at some point in my life, and now I am in a continual state of unforgivability? And if you're wrestling with that this morning, I need you to understand how speech works in the Bible. Because speech is always connected to the heart. Um, We see this in in a positive light in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says that that if your heart's disposition toward Jesus is positive, if you trust in him, well, then you will confess him. Your mouth will follow suit. And what we have in our passage is the antithesis of of this, that if you continue to reject Jesus and the Holy Spirit's testimony of him, if your heart's disposition is hostile, you are persistently and decisively rejecting him, then you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But it's not a single act or a single word spoken, but a persistent denial of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. And so an easy way to respond to that is simply that if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, odds are you haven't done it. That being said, do not miss the forest that Jesus is trying to paint for this particularly haunting tree. Jesus wants his followers to grasp how much more powerful and terrifying the work of God is compared to the work of men. Therefore, they should fear God. And fear always leads to a change in behavior. For those of you who haven't met my family, I have two kids. Theo, who's five. Darcy May, who's three and a half. And and you have a good chance of picking them out in a lineup because they will be the ones who are not wearing shoes. My children love to run around barefoot. Rain or shine, indoors or outdoors, their toes are out. Until very recently, because Darcy May stepped on a bee. And now they are terrified of experiencing that pain again. And so their behavior has changed. Fear changes behavior. But sometimes that change is not a willing change. Fear can coerce us to do something that we typically wouldn't. 
Uh, we see this a lot in films, but the one that came to mind this week was Fast 8, The Fate of the Furious. Now, that's not a great movie, but it's also the eighth installment in a franchise, so what did you expect? But it does make my point. Uh, the, the crisis of this film is the good guy, Dominic Toretto, the, the mechanic-turned-stunt-driving super agent who saved the world a couple of times at this point. Uh, he's gone rogue. He's doing some diabolical things, and his crew just can't figure out what happened, why he would act so out of character. Until the movie progresses, and we discover that the true villain of the film has captured his son, and she's blackmailing him into doing what he never would do on his own. And it kind of feels like that's what Jesus is doing here, doesn't it? It, 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 it almost seems like Jesus is blackmailing his disciples into remaining loyal. It's almost like he's saying, guys, it's going to get tough out there. But just remember, it can be so much worse. So stay loyal out there. And that might be true if Jesus was speaking in a vacuum. But he's not. Jesus is responding to a very specific situation. See, typically when we talk about fear, we ask someone, so what are you afraid of? But perhaps a better question might be, what are you afraid for? If fear is our response to something valuable being threatened, what valuable thing is being threatened? What are we trying to protect? And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what's the source of fear in this passage? And if you scroll back up to verse 1 of Luke chapter 12, you'll not only find the context for our text, the answer to that question. Verse 1, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Perhaps you can remember back in December that the United States was shocked and appalled at the news that 10 people were trampled to death at a Travis Scott concert. It's a horrible thing. And the reason that it happened was because the crowd was so enthralled with him, they wanted to get closer to the star of the evening that they were willing to step on each other to get just a little bit closer. And I think that's what's happening here in our passage. No, no one is getting trampled to death, but Jesus is so popular with the people that his approval ratings are so high that they are stepping on each other to try and get just a little bit closer to him. And I want you to try to imagine what the disciples' faces must have looked like in this moment. And my guess is that the disciples' faces were just filled with delight at Jesus's, and by extension, their popularity. <laughs> that they were soaking in the approval. They were basking in the glow of the crowd. And in that moment, Jesus turns to them and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If you were here last week, you might remember that Jesus pronounced woe on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, that they, they did all the right outward things, but they were doing it for the wrong reasons. They were trying to impress and gain the approval of others. And here in our text, Jesus turns to his closest followers and says, you watch out because you're susceptible too. And I want to propose to you that Jesus has just identified what the disciples are afraid for. 
Jesus is addressing their fear of insignificance. He's warning them about where they find their worth and approval, which is something that we are all afraid of because we are all searching for significance. And I think that's evident from the most powerful button on the internet. Now, you might be tempted to think that it's the search button on Google's homepage, but I actually think it's the like button. Originally, the like button was created so that your Facebook newsfeed wouldn't be flooded with 80 variations of the same sentiment. I like this. And so they invented the big thumbs up and a number counter next to it. But in so doing, it had an, an unintended consequence. The like button became a way for people to track and determine their worth. And the rise in anxiety and depression among teenage users, and most users, frankly, is a testament to its power. And the reason that it's so powerful is because a person's significance is not self-made. And a thumbs-up counter is a really easy way to glean feedback from others and therefore determine how valuable you really are. And I think we are all searching for that feedback, though not all of us look to social media for it. Perhaps we look to our significant others, our children, our parents, our teachers, our coaches, our bosses. We are constantly searching for significance. And our default is always to look to other people to provide that for us. Uh, we are kind of like a Wemmick. Now, a, a Wemmick is a, a wooden puppet-type thing uh, that's a fictional uh, creature made up for one of Max Licato's kids' books. And if you are a Wemmick who lives in Wemmickville, uh, you always know what people think about you because everyone walks around with two sticker books, uh, a sticker book of gold stars and a sticker book of gray dots. And if people approve of you, if they think you're funny or cool or athletic or attractive, they'll walk up and just slap a gold sticker on you. But if they don't think those things, they think you're lame or boring or whatever, then <laughs> gray dot. And so, if you are a Wemmick, walking around in Wemmickville, you are constantly concerned about two things. How can I get more gold stars? And while avoiding getting more gray dots. And I know that's a simplistic illustration, but I think that's how all of us walk around living too that we try to put our best selves forward to present ourselves and our families in such a way that we will earn the most gold stars from others. We present ourselves as the sacrificial parent, the successful business person, the beauty who turns heads, the, the unaging athlete. We elicit gold stars from those around us to the point that we would conform our behavior to make sure that we get them. And this is just as true of us in the Christian community. We just have a different scorecard of what earns gold stars and gray dots. Here, we give out gold stars if people send their kids to Christian schools, if they bring their physical Bible to church, and you get an extra gold star if you take notes on the sermon. If you serve in children's ministry, gold star for you. And if you are married and making new church members on the regular, gold star. See, we are, we are always looking for the approval of those around us and we will conform ourselves to the scorecard of the masses to calm our fear of insignificance. The problem, of course, is that our fear of rejection is never fully extinguished. 
your gold star and your gray dot count are always in flux. The crowd might adore you today, be trampling on each other to get closer to you, but in a few short weeks, they might be calling for your execution. They did it to Jesus. They're going to do it to the disciples. And they can do it to you if you don't fear man and their opinion. See, when we rest our significance on the opinions of others, you will never find rest. You must constantly be conforming and adapting, trying to measure up and be good enough for those around you. And should you lose people's approval, it will destroy your sense of value and maybe even your reason for living. This is what Jesus is warning them, and by extension, us, about. That living for the approval of man is not living at all. It's disastrous. So what's the alternative? How do we deal with this fear of insignificance and rejection? Well, the only way for this fear to be removed is if our significance becomes a fixed point. Perhaps you noticed that Jesus seems to get a little confused in our text. That in verse 5, he says that we should fear God. And then two verses later, he, he's saying that you shouldn't fear God. And the reason for this discrepancy is because he's trying to make two different points. God absolutely should be the primary source of our significance. He should trump all others, which is his point in verse 5. But we don't need to fear him the way we might fear man because God's approval, his care, and his love are not fickle like men's. It's as constant and unchanging as he is. How do we know? Verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, there are a couple of cultural gaps that we need to bridge to get Jesus' point. First, a penny wasn't a one-cent piece, but it was pretty insignificant. It represented a half-hour's wage. And so, uh, one hour's work at minimum wage got you two pennies. And with those two pennies, you could buy five, smar five sparrows. Sparrows are, of course, these tiny little birds, and they were one of the cheapest sources of food in the first century. And so for two pennies, you could get a five-piece McSparrow value meal. And the point is that sparrows are pretty insignificant. And yet God doesn't forget them. Actually, he, he actively cares and provides for them. And you are far more valuable than many sparrows. And this fact should blow our minds Here's how the psalmist speaks about our value in God's eyes. I'm, I'm reading from Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. God has infused us with so much value and significance. He, he created us. He provides for us. He even invited us to rule with him. It only makes sense that we would seek out significance from him. And since God, in his view of us, does not change, we shouldn't ever 
fear and significance. Which means, obviously, something has gone awry. Genesis 3 tells us what happened. Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were enjoying the significance of being image bearers and vice regents when the serpent comes along. And he says to them, and I am paraphrasing here, hey, do you, do you really think that God values you? Do, do you really think that you're important in his eyes? Well, if you are, why won't he let you eat from that tree? Seems to me that he's trying to keep you from true significance, that he wants to keep you as an image of God and not let you become like God, knowing good and evil. You know, if you could, if you could just break free from God, if you, if you would just look to yourself and each other to define your value, that would be so much better. And you would be able to achieve true significance. But all that resulted from that rebellion was to cut them off from the source of their significance. They alienated themselves from God and earned for themselves judgment and death. You see, we all have theophobia, we are all afraid of the wrath of God, and deep down we believe that he has always felt this way about us, that he has always disapproved of us, that we are like ants to him on the sidewalk, and he's just biding his time until he can start lighting us up. But then Jesus steps in to set the record straight, and two things happen. First, Jesus deals with our sin and rebellion. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus, who was beloved by God, pleasing to him in every way, stepped into our shoes. He took our place. He bore the wrath of God for our rebellion. He made the way for us to be reunited with God. And in so doing, he established our significance for all time. Here's how the Apostle Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's how significant you are in the eyes of God. You aren't worth silver or gold to him. No, you are worth the precious blood of his son. And if his son has infinite worth, that's me, that means that's what he appraises you at as well. And when you, when you grasp this perfect love, how much he values you, it removes this fear for approval because we realize we already have it. And that encourages and strengthens us to live differently. When God is our ultimate fear, when we are primarily concerned with what he thinks and says about us, it, it actually frees us up to live for him. We don't have to defend ourselves to others. We don't, we don't need to protect our sense of significance because our value is as constant as his care for us. We're actually freed up to live boldly for him, to share what he's done in and for us, even if it brings about rejection from men. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't miss what Jesus is calling us to. He is calling us to face rejection, to be seen as insignificant 
in the eyes of the world. And that is a fearful thing. Unless, unless we grasp the lavish love that has been poured out on us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we praise you that you are God and there is none like you, that no one uh, can stand before you, stand against you, that you are all-powerful. And yet you also are good to us, providing for us, caring for us um, in every way imaginable. We thank you for that, Father, and we also confess that we are prone to fear others rather than you. Uh, we confess that our lives are often dictated by the opinions, the glances, and the thoughts of others. Father, would you forgive us of that? Would you forgive us for not elevating you to where you ought to be? And Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to see, to grasp, would it penetrate our heart, the great love that you have for us, that, that if we are in Christ, we are, as you say to your Son, we are well-pleasing in your sight. Father, would you sink that truth deep into our hearts so that we might go out and live boldly for you. And even as we sing our final song this morning, would you, uh, would you speak to us, Father, reminding us of your great love and care for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.